Welcome to session 118 of Scanner School. We teach you everything you need to know about the scanner radio hobby. Today, we're talking about what it takes to actually build a dispatch center right now on Scanner School. Welcome to the Scanner School, a podcast dedicated to the scanner radio hobby. Class is about to begin. Here is your host, Phil Lichtenberger. Hey, welcome to Scanner School. My name is Phil Lichtenberger. My amateur radio call sign is W2LAE, and this podcast is always here to teach you everything you need to know about the scanner radio hobby. Today, we're going to switch it up just a little bit. So instead of talking about things from the receiving point of view, which is what we do as scanner radio users, we're going to talk about things from the transmitting side of the house. What does it take to build from the ground up, and no pun intended on this one, what does it take to build a dispatching center or a dispatch console or even just, you know, the, the actual network that you're listening to on your scanner? Now, in this conversation, we're primarily talking about conventional. And it's very interesting to see, like, how transparent things are from a scanner radio hobby, but how involved and how evolved things have become on the actual transmitter side of the house, I guess is the way to say it. So... I have an old friend of mine, Rob Bambino, on the podcast today. Now, Rob and I, we were in high school together. He was a year behind me, and we kind of introduced, uh, were introduced to each other when we both were in the radio station in high school. So I was a senior heading out, and I guess maybe he was in 10th or 11th grade. I, I don't exactly remember where he was, but... Um, but yeah, we uh, we met through there, and we kind of kept in touch throughout the years. And uh, Rob actually owns his own company where he builds, designs, and puts together dispatching centers. So the first half of this interview, we're going to talk what it takes from the, from the tower to the radios to voter systems and everything else. After the first break, though, we are going to kind of switch gears, and we're going to talk about a little bit about the pains that's involved with the T-band uh, buyback, P25 trunking, why in our area things are mostly staying conventional. Rob's got his uh, opinions on P25 and trunking. And again, these are Rob's opinions. These aren't my opinions, right? We're going to just differentiate between that. This is this is what Rob has to say about all that. So we'll, we'll take it as that. So with that, I want to uh, welcome Rob Bambino into the podcast. Now, again, if you want to hire Rob for his services, we'll have all his contact information in the links of the podcast, scannerschool.com slash 118. All right, let's go ahead and find out from Rob what it takes to put together a dispatch center. So Rob, thank you so much for taking the time tonight to uh, come on the podcast and talk to us all about your knowledge of setting up a dispatch center and what it takes to uh, to get something like this up and off the ground. I, uh, I appreciate you coming here and speaking with us today. Thanks, Phil. Thanks for having us. So just a bit of a background. Tell us a little bit about what it is that, uh, well, how did you get started basically with radio and how did you evolve into what you're doing now and what is it that you do now? Well, I'll tell you what, um, the uh, love of radio started uh, way back when in um, elementary school. I had a, uh, a band teacher who was a uh, amateur radio operator and he uh, used to bring his radio to uh, school, and uh, we spent a lot more time playing happy radio than we did playing happy instruments. So it kind of spurred the imagination and uh, kind of took off from there. You know, I've been uh, dabbling uh, in, in the radio stuff for a long time, and um, it blossomed uh, into a business probably about 
20 years ago. Uh, so now we, we uh, own and operate a, a communications company here uh, on Long Island uh, that specializes in um, you know radio communication systems, uh, repeaters, microwave radio, dispatch centers, building integration, and things of that nature. Interesting. I didn't know that you had a band teacher that got you into radio because I remember, you know, when we were, you and I were in high school, I remember you were all excited to get that used uh, uh, cruiser that you had, the, the old the old retired police vehicle. And you're like, I'm going to take it out again, put the radios in it, and put the lights on it, and 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 really set it up. So, I mean, I, I knew your love for radio and that kind of stuff went back to at least high school, but I didn't know it went back even further than that. So that that's really cool. Yeah, so it's been it's been a, quite a trip. Um, but yeah, I actually started in elementary school, and uh, also had um, uh, interesting enough a shop teacher in in, uh, in junior high school that was an amateur radio operator, a very well known local amateur radio operator who has since retired from teaching and moved to North Carolina. But uh, he also uh, spent a lot more time in the classroom. Uh, messing around with radios and, and uh, the, the stuff like that and did uh, shop stuff. So it was actually kind of fun going to that class because we got to play with antennas and beams and learn how to put connectors on. And uh, it was really, really a lot of fun. Sounds like I took the wrong classes in high school. And what, what, what shop teacher was that? Joe Scott. Mr. Scott. Mr. Scott, W-A-2-B-A-J, I believe was his call sign, if I, if I remember. He seemed like he was he was well beyond retirement when we were in high school. So yeah, and uh, he used to ride a bike <laughs> from uh, West Islip every day to, to teach. Get out Claire. of here! Yeah, he was legally blind, I believe, so he couldn't drive. So he used to he used to bike it every day, even in the snow. <laughs> wow! Yeah, I, I remember him now that you bring the name up. But I didn't realize you guys went into all that stuff. So I never had Mister Scott. I had um, I had the uh, the the I forget what his name now, but he looked like Mister Green from uh dr green from er okay. and uh, uh he was yeah, he yeah. was a military guy so the stories he used to tell were, were pretty good and uh so, so i had him for for something or other but uh yeah pretty cool my, my music teachers were never that, that exciting either so glad you had a, a good history so i must have gone to the wrong schools and took the wrong classes <laughs> but <laughs> it all worked out in the end anyway does, so right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, I mean, I guess what well, we had like what uh, four hundred plus kids in our, each of our graduating classes, so the the chances of hitting the right teachers, I guess, were uh, sometimes hard to hit. So, but, yeah, big um, class, big graduating classes. Exactly, big school to begin with too. So, you're you're now working basically. You're doing this as a, as, as a gig, setting up you know all these dispatch centers and whatnot. So. It's more than just really a guy at a desk with a radio, a microphone, a speaker, and an antenna, right? I mean, it's it's more than it's a little bit more involved than that. It, it certainly is. It's 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 blossomed into many new technologies. Right. So take us through a typical um, dispatch facility. I guess where in each fire well not each firehouse, but it seems like right every department here almost has their own radio room. If not, then you know the next department over will will cover for them. But what what would you typically see in a uh, a dispatch center in a uh, fire department that you've worked on? Yeah, so more so in in um, Suffolk County, uh, in Nassau as well too. Most of the fire departments, the fire districts and stuff, do have their own radio room. Some of them, what we consider unmanned radio rooms, where most of the times they sit unused, and if there's a call, someone, a uh, volunteer that comes to the firehouse would now man that radio room. And, and they're pretty basic, you know, and then they have 
full-blown dispatch centers where they're manned by a 24-7, 365 dispatcher that they are a little bit more advanced and a little more technolo- uh, technologically advanced. So it runs the gamut. But yeah, it, it definitely goes way past just uh, some of them are as simple as just a radio and a power supply connected to an outside antenna and all the way up to uh, integrating uh, building automation and sensors, alarms, remote access to uh, different firehouses. So uh, it's, it's evolved, definitely. Right. So, and again, too, I've, I've seen with a lot of them, you have like, um, you know, you have the, basically the desk where the radio equipment is, the monitors, the, you know, the whole, the whole deal. And then in a separate closet away from everything, you'll have the, basically the rack, right? With all the rack mounted receivers and, and, and radios on there. So the user at the, at the desk has the ability to control these radios or they're just uh, basically just a volume and, and that's what it is. Or, or how is that kind of set up as far as uh, being able to use the radios and, and listen to them? How, how does that work? Yeah, so it's a good question. So years ago, the technology platform that was out, and some people might see these in their local firehouses, such as Centricom, Centricom 2, and Zetron uh, 4000 series equipment, were what we call button and light consoles. And they were based on uh, a protocol called TDM. And it would have exactly what it says, button and light. It would be fixed furniture. Okay, that had uh, turrets that held the equipment at at an angle, and they were modular. And uh, these units would rack mount into this special dispatch furniture, and 25 pair phone lines and uh, data lines would run from the front dispatch office into a closet or a back room where it would connect to a card cage. And in that card cage would be the different cards that would connect to the different various radios that you're looking to control, either locally or through phone line to a remote site. That, Believe it or not, that technology is actually still out there. Zetron, which is a very big manufacturer of consoles, uh, still makes button and light consoles. Okay, And there are a few other manufacturers out there that still do that. Um, Centricom was made by Motorola. Motorola no longer manufactures that. And quite honestly, they were an excellent piece of equipment. Most of the consoles that we are putting in today are replacing Centricom's. And they've been around 30, 40 years in service. Uh, So it's a a real testament to the product that they put together. The newer technology now is backboned via Ethernet cable. So it's all IP-based, most of it. And that's where you get your your best technological advantage now because you can integrate it with so many other things. Such as what? Well, so now once, once you have an IP stream, okay, on the front end, we're now using computer stations with monitors, okay? And everything is software, software-driven. So instead of having those rack-mount turrets, we now have two 27-inch computer monitors. One monitor, uh, one screen winds up being the radio control and the tone selection, while the other monitor in most of these manned firehouses is the door control and low-voltage controls, alarms, and other mutual aid departments, that is connected now to the back end via Ethernet cabling, Cat5. And there's still a back end. There's still still what looks like a card cage. However, it's much smaller. It's much condensed. So now this cabling comes into a, an Ethernet switch, a network switch. And this network switch connects into these units called MRGs or outposts, depending on the, the manufacturer. And that's the brains of the console. The entire brains of the console is contained in 
a box the size of maybe a small scanner, you know, like a Bearcat scanner. And that connects to your radios. And what's even nicer about the newer technology is that with the advent of Kenwood MX radios, uh, EF Johnson Viking radios, Motorola Apex radios, these consoles directly connect to the radios on a data bus uh, level. And it allows you to control features other than just channel change and push the talk. So it really expanded what we can do and the feature, the features that are available to the dispatch uh, centers. Once all of this stuff is on ethernet, now it makes it easy to get it to different fire stations to mix and integrate it with other dispatch centers. They can share resources. They can back each other up. Uh, this can happen via uh, fiber microwave link vpn over internet so it's really opened up a really uh, fantastic world of possibilities very nice so basically what you're saying is if one fire department or one dispatch center for whatever reason is either unmanned or has an emergency and they have to vacate another department can come in and then over the ethernet or the vpn or microwave can then dispatch out as if they were sitting directly in the other person's dispatch center more or less that's correct that's correct. Okay. Yeah, they can they can either share screens and utilize the uh, you know the host department's radios and console resources from a remote location, or they you know if it's a if it's a backup dispatch center to the primary customer, they can utilize their own in house equipment and their own console to back up that that department that they're working with. Very cool. Very cool. So it sounds like it's a lot more complicated than it used to be. So, <laughs> but yeah, as with everything, it evolves, right? Everything, everything changes and, and, uh, it gets more complicated. And, but like you're saying, there's the features that are there. It's just, you know, if I think if somebody would have tried time travel from 50, 60, 70 years ago, right? And see how it used to be and looked at a center now, they'd probably be blown away, right? I mean, it's, it's definitely changed. You know, it, it definitely has. And, you know, I think it's, it's, it's a two way street, you know, people back in the seventies and eighties putting this stuff together probably would have never thought what we have today would be around and they'd be in awe. And conversely, people starting out their career, let's say today doing consoles and radio work could never fathom what the guys in the seventies and eighties and the nineties were doing because it's just old technology good technology, reliable technology, but different. So years ago, you had to concern yourself with phone lines and RTNA lines and different mediums for, for getting from point A to point B for wide area radio systems. Now, the phone company doesn't even support this stuff. They don't even mm. have tie lines. Technicians now don't know how to check levels across phone lines and, and copper pairs. It's all right. Yeah, we have ring and tip. <laughs> ring and tip right, is all yeah. gone. Pot slides. I mean, they're disconnecting from the house over here where you and I are at. It's like, oh, you want you want fiber? Okay, we're going to cut your pot slide. I was like, hold on a second here. I said, you're not cutting my copper. He's like, why? We're never going to support it again, so it's gone. I'm like, holy cow. It's like, just go ahead and rip the system off. <laughs> rip the system out. But, you know, it's all changing. Yeah. So the changing world. A absolutely. And yeah, and that's transcended even into the radio communications part of this rather, you know, rather than above and beyond the dispatch center portion. Right. And I was gonna say too, is, you know, besides thinking of it as going from analog or P25, uh, DMR going into trunking, right? Just let's just say that things on the radio side, the receiving side, right? The part that, that, that 
you know, I am and my audience are at where it comes to scanning, right? We're kind of transparent to all this magic that's happening behind the scenes, which is why I've asked you to come on here, which is, it's really fascinating because, you know, we think, oh, you know, the, the radio hobbies evolved. We used to listen to it on low band or we used to have crystals or, you know, it was just a hundred channel or a 60 channel scanner or a 20 channel scanner. Now all of a sudden it's, you know, SDS 100s and 200s and simulcast and P25 and encryption and, you know, who knows what else is going to come down the pike. But it's such a slower rollout and evolution, I think, on the receiver side than it is on the whole infrastructure side, which is which is really in its own. I mean, it's like I said, it's transparent to the end user, which is really uh, astounding. So, yeah, absolutely. Now, let's talk about a little bit more along the backhaul. So, we've got basically a we, we've established we've got a, a dispatch center, right? We've got a, or or a communications room. You got a, you got a man or woman at the desk watching screens, using the microphone, right? Obviously, they have a lot on their plate. Now, what's really cool about this too is, do most of them they use foot pedals to, to key the mic, or they use regular microphones? How's that one work? Yeah, so that that's really cool. So on the um, the IP based consoles like the Zetron Max, which is a real high end console, you can use foot pedal. You can use the desk mic, which has a, a push-to-talk button, uh, and uh, the console is mouse-driven. So you can use the mouse to hover over a radio tile or a push-to-talk soft button and key up the radios in that fashion. You know, and there's also touchscreen options available, okay. but a lot of departments don't really go for that very much. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I wouldn't go for that because I don't like having fingerprints on my screens. But uh, yeah. that's that's the, that's the funny thing you were saying too. It's it's a it's a tile, and that's really cool. So instead of hitting the push button on the console to lock in the radio you want, you're just moving the mouse over and clicking on the actual like like a grid on on the screen and activating that radio, and that's the one you're going to talk on. And I guess what you're saying too is when you're going to do a dispatch, you can say I want engine one, uh, chief, or rescue, and you select those options, and then when the radio keys up, it knows it's and at that totem sequence. Is that uh, assumption correct with that? Yeah, that's correct. So the flexibility okay. of programming tone sequences and stack tones and mutual responses years mm-hmm. ago used to be very tedious. Uh, in the TDM consoles, it was on an EEPROM. It was on a chip. And you had to take okay. that chip out of the console and put it in a special chip programmer and program this thing. And the chips would fail. And it was very complex. You wanted to make a simple change. Right. It took specialized equipment, specialized people. Now, we log into the, the back end, the server, okay, uh, which is all Linux-based. And you go into the GUI, and you can set up all these wonderful features. You can simul-select radios. You can say, look, if I send the general alarm and the chief's tone and the rescue tone, I want you to steer these radios or put these radios or put these transmissions automatically over this channel. And the changes are instant, and it takes short time to actually implement those changes on the console. So it's it's definitely nice. You get spoiled working on them. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure it's a lot different uh, with that as well. So we're we're taking a trip now back, right? So we got dispatch room, dispatch, uh, sorry, dispatcher's desk, right? With the operator, he's got the screens, he's got the ability to make, you know, on the fly changes to what he's doing. Behind him, behind the scenes, you've got a room with the console, I mean, with the, with the rack mounted equipment, which is basically the heart and soul, right? It's, it's the way that he communicates basically, uh, to the outside world, but it's got to go beyond there, right? So you have basically the tower, the coax and everything else. So your job basically is what you're doing is you're doing the whole thing from the ground all the way to the sky, right? You've got every little piece and bolt in between RF and physical human being, correct? 
That's correct. So what is it like to actually get the tower, set the tower up, put the equipment on there, and then get it going? I mean, that's got to be a feat all on its own. Yeah, and, and it's it's actually a lot of fun. You know, we're, we're, we have an interesting area that we live in here on Long Island because – Oh, we certainly do. Know, right. From the, from the south shore, we're pretty flat, you know, so radio communications is not as troublesome as – you get north on the, you know, the north side of uh, the island. You're north of the expressway, north of the LIE, and you have dramatic changes in elevation. You can be at sea level up on the North Shore and go three miles south and be up at elevations of 200 feet, 200 plus feet. Right. And, back and for anybody who doesn't know, right, that can cause a problem because you might think, oh, I've got my tower on the on the topmost ridge, the peak highest elevation. But you have a valley now, and you can't get RF at 300 foot into the sea level side because it's off. It's in the shadow. So, like if um, there's there's one town on the North Shore, on the extreme North Shore, right, Bayville. There's a water tank over there with all this RF equipment on there. As you're driving around Shore Road, which is the northernmost road in Bayville, you're on the south, uh, the north end of the cliff. Guess what happens? RF doesn't get to the cliff, doesn't get to the road because it's basically being shadowed by you know, the, the hill and it goes right over you and you're just sitting there in the dead spot. So it really is. I mean, the North shore here is, is, uh, is pretty intense as far as trying to plot out RF and do propagation and getting things into the right places. So, um, I, I definitely feel your pain. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, um, you get spoiled working on the South shore a little bit yes. uh, and you get up a customer on the North shore and you're like, Oh, I got to put some time in on this one. But <laughs> you know, there's, there's a lot of challenges. You're right. And technology has helped us out quite a bit. So, you know, on the North shore, which is considerably older infrastructure than the South shore, mm-hmm. we're losing, you know, most customers on the North shore have to do multi-site systems, okay? Whether it's a voted system, a simulcast system, or multiple transmitters, you need a way to get that stuff all linked together. Enter in what you had mentioned a couple minutes ago. That used to be done via RTNA, which is basically a tied-up phone line. It's a phone line that's constantly on. It's a direct connection from point A to point B to C in a ring or you know between A and B. The phone company is no longer supporting this stuff. They're cutting away their old copper. The copper is failing. Not all of these places have fiber to them yet. It's been a slow rollout on the North Shore for fiber. Some of it is jurisdictional issues. Some of the villages and towns haven't okayed the construction. Some of it is just lack of funding. So, and it makes some it of it difficult. too is the people, the people who are there. They don't, they don't want to see changes in the neighborhood. They don't want to see telephone poles. They don't want to see their road dug up either to have the infrastructure put in. So, uh, you know, it's, it's the typical NIMBY uh, in a lot of areas around here too. So yeah. that's a big thing. And, yep. and couple that with the, um, the elevation, microwave, microwave shots are generally not possible or, or difficult on the North Shore of Long Island. Uh, so it becomes a big challenge. What, what we've been really successful at doing and you know maybe it's a little bit of luck maybe it's a lot of proper planning we've been implementing a lot of ip based communication systems so not only do we have the ip consoles we now have ip based radio systems and it comes in a couple of flavors it comes in a multi-site voting system it comes in ip based simulcast simulcast is fun okay that's you know multiple transmitters 
transmitting at the same time with uh, GPS reference. Okay, um, but you're talking about I've, simulcast two on an analog state, non P25 trunking. Just to clarify. Correct. Yeah. So yeah, uh, here on Long Island, with with, with what we're doing, right? With what you're doing out here, right. correct? Yep. Yeah. A- anyone listening outside the area, uh, a- uh, analog is is kind of the mainstay here for the the fire service, and for good reason. <laughs> Sometimes outside of the areas, they they do have you know P25 based. Uh, systems that the fire departments utilize, but for here it's it's analog. But even if it was P25, the, the same equipment, the same principles, for the most part, still apply. But we've had very good luck, and we've mixed and matched systems over microwave and fiber, and the systems work phenomenal. But setting up one of these systems has its challenges. It starts with finding out from the customer what the challenges are, where their problematic areas are, what they are using now, okay, what kind of system, what frequencies, what bands, what they anticipate to have and what they need. Uh, once we gather all that information, we generally go out to the to the area and drive around and get familiar with all of the sites, changes in elevation, go to the challenging areas that they have. And it's always good to find someone local at the fire department that kind of knows their town, they can tell you, look, I have a high site. I got a park or a DPW yard or a, you know, we own a, a, another piece of property up on this high point of this hill. We can put something here. Okay, well, let's keep that in our back pocket. Let's drive over here. So we put together a picture and we input this information into a computer system that does topographic mapping. And it starts painting a picture of what we can anticipate at certain known factors or certain known items. Once we paint the picture and we say, look, we're confident that we have something that's going to work, then we actually go out in the field and set up temporary equipment and do live testing. Not, I, I don't, I'm not aware, but many companies don't do that. And I think it's probably one of the most important things that we can do as a, as a, a, a company for the customer. And we've been very successful at it. And testing what your theory is, and, and being able to prove it and watch it work and know that when you put this stuff in, it's going to perform is really key. And it's, like I said, it's made us pretty successful. So Yep. It's it's definitely one of those things that, uh, especially with, with my job too, working as, uh, you know, with the cell phone companies, we do the exact same thing. It's like you you, you put the sites there, you, you propagate it using a tool, you see where it's going to cover, where it's not going to cover. If required to, then you go out there, exactly the same thing. You set up a little temporary site with a, with a continuous wave, right, CW carrier. And you go out there and you and you uh, you drive test it and you see where the signal is and see if it matches what what the model said it was going to match and everything else and you know you know where okay this is a little bit weaker and then you you go back in you you tweak things up and fill things in and and there you go so it sounds like you've got uh, a pretty good layout of of how you get things built before it's while well, it's still on paper which is the easiest time that there is to make any type of changes to a network because once you start construction forget it it's almost like you've committed to it. Yeah, you have. You're right. Um, and, and construction here on Long Island is definitely uh, challenging too. Um, yeah, you know, I'm sure. You, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, that is a whole other realm of of um, confusion. I'm, I'm biting my tongue. Towers, so <laughs> yeah, towers are very fra- frowned upon here at, on Long Island, and the minute anybody sees a tower or hears of a tower. Unfortunately, they automatically associate it with cell phone, and right. uh, it just makes people go bonkers. And 
a lot of fire departments here uh, locally have, and I'm sure as you drive around, they were listening to the local area, they're, they're going to see co-located sailor towers on public property, fire departments, towns, villages. It starts out with good intention. The fire department has a need. It's expensive to construct towers. So Very. a cell company uh, will approach a, a fire district and say, look, we'll give you a uh, top of the tower. We'll give you whatever you want. We'll put, We'll provide the equipment. We'll rig it. We're going to put this tower up on your property, but then we're going to get from three-quarters of the way from the top down to load cellular carriers. Uh, great. you know. And a lot of times it does work. It works well, and, and the community embraces it or doesn't mind it. And there are some places where it becomes a fight. And uh, we've, had, we've, had, we've been involved in a lot of that co-location and it's it's always interesting but um putting towers up is a lot of fun right i'm sure we deal with a lot of same third-party tower companies and everything else too so but again you got a lot of these, a lot of these residents to come out too and, and they'll just go after the fire regardless just eliminate the cell phone right side of things in the co-location just a tower for a fire department on long island you'll get residents to come out and says why did the fire department put a tower up they can't put a tower up it's like, but it's for public yep. safety. It's to keep you safe, but it ruins my view of what, <laughs> you know? Yeah, so. yeah. And, you know, a lot of that, and people say, well, why Why is that? And, and technology has driven that. A lot of the fire departments were uh, on, on low-band VHF, 46 megahertz, for many, many years. The manufacturers have kind of decided that they're going to put this band out the pasture. Now, it served the fire departments very well. The fire departments did voice paging on it. They did truck-to-truck communications, base-to-truck, base-to-portable communications, and it worked. Albeit, the island is becoming built up. We're getting multi-story buildings. We're getting concrete structures. It hampered and degraded low-band VHF's ability to propagate. So enter in UHF. The UHF is great. It's got great penetrating values inside structures and buildings, but you need to have structures to make it work. You have to be up high or have multiple sites. So that technology change has kind of driven the need for higher towers, more towers, and the lack of equipment. You know, from the manufacturers, Motorola doesn't even make low band equipment anymore. So. Right, well, they're one of the manufacturers that backed out, but not every manufacturer has either. But just also paint a picture as to where we sit here on Long Island. People here complain about the fire horns. They say, "Why? What's that noise pollution? Why do we have to hear a fire horn every time there's a call?" I mean, we grew up with the fire horns, right? The fire sirens and everything else. And now it's like, why is that going off? That shouldn't be happening. And I mean, my local department only fires it off once a week now on Sundays. And I know down by you is the same story. It's like unless there's a, a fire or or the the Sunday morning check, that they're not toning them out anymore. So. People's points of views have gotten – I don't want to get political here, but they've gotten sensitive. <laughs> so they, they, they like to uh, get easily offended when it comes to uh, a lot of the stuff that we as, as scanner users uh, uh, kind of in, enjoy. But I want to swing back a little bit, not to get off topic here with, with the towers because I can talk to this all day because to me this is my 9 to 5 job. But you talked about uh, voters and a voting system. Do you want to just touch base really quickly on how voters work and um, what the magic is behind them and why you would deploy a voting system? Sure. Yes. Yeah, so uh, the principal idea of a voting system is that you may, there, there are two things when you talk about a system. You've got talk out and talk in. Talk out is the repeater or base radio talking out to the field units. 
Okay, and your token is those subscriber units, as we refer to them, or the portables and mobiles talking back into the system. Obviously, you're talking about a 50 or 100 watt base station talking out, okay, and that may be using a gain antenna with higher power or higher wattage. That's going to cover a lot better than a 5 watt portable or 30 watt mobile talking back into the system. So the principle is, is that, well, everyone can hear me. The base or the repeater may not be able to hear those units. So you have a centrally located main transmitter, okay, which also acts as a receiver at, a, at a, generally speaking, a high point or on a 100-foot pole behind the firehouse or what might have you. And then out in the field, you would put a series of receive-only sites that tie back in okay, to the main repeater site. Okay, At the main repeater site, you would have a unit called a voter. Okay, and the units out in the field, the, the receivers would be voting receivers. So what happens is now the voter is basically like a computer, okay? And it's it's they stick it between the transmitter and the receiver of the main repeater. The units go out in the field, okay, and they key up and they're talking back. And let's say it's a four-site system. We've got the main site, which is a receiver, and three remote sites. And as the unit transmits, he may be hitting one, two, three, or all of the sites. Okay, and what the voter does is, is looks at the signal coming from all of the sites and says, "I have the best signal coming from site one. I'm going to take the input from that site and I'm going to stick it through the repeater and broadcast that back out." And continually, as that unit's keying up, that might be a chief driving down the block, that may be a police officer or a firefighter out on the street walking with a portable radio, they may be hitting different sites, better or worse. So the voter is constantly looking and constantly querying the receivers, the streams coming into it from the remote site saying, I like signal this signal better from site two. Let me switch to site two. And then you may fade back into site one and it'll pick site one. So it's constantly always looking for the best signal. Great systems. And, and years ago, that was accomplished over phone lines. Those are the RTNA lines that we were talking about. Those lines were always on. And basically, from the remote sites, it was 600 ohm audio coming back into this voter. And how the voter works is it looks at signal and noise. It takes the, the modulation coming in and says, I have more signal than noise, or I have more noise than signal, and let me vote that. And it has an algorithm built in. And that's how, that, that's, how that's accomplished. Now, with the new equipment, the same principles apply, but it's done over IP. And stepping back, on the old systems, you had one voter, one repeater, okay? And, and the systems were troublesome because you had single points of failure. And in public safety, I'm going to have to tell you, failure is not really an option. You don't want things to break and communications to stop from your dispatch console to your voting repeaters. So the older systems had some things to them that were undesirable. And we had some workarounds, but generally speaking, you were kind of stuck with what you had. On the new IP voting systems, the technology is great because the voter is now software-based, and they load these voters, or at least the, the equipment that we use, they load the voters into multiple repeaters or multiple receivers. So you're basically creating a redundant network. So if one site fails... The other sites will take over, and you don't have a single point of failure anymore. And what has added a little better twist to that is now we can add another repeater to the system. But that repeater may stay dormant. It may never turn on. But if the main site fails, 
the backup site, the backup repeater, automatically takes over. Not only does it take over as a repeater, but it'll also take over as a voting comparator, okay? And it'll look at the other remaining two or three sites left in the system and take over like nothing ever happened. So to the end user, you know, you're avoiding failure, you're avoiding going off the air, and it's seamless to them. So technology is, is really, in that case, a really wonderful thing. So it's really cool stuff. Nice. Now, I'm assuming, too, there's an alarming setup on there as well. So you'll know as the system admin or maybe somebody in the dispatcher console would know, a dispatch center would know, hey, I have an error on my repeater, and it's something that has to be addressed You know, when the tech comes in or something like that. Is that correct? Yeah. Yep, absolutely. So another beautiful thing about IP is that with the streamlining of connection between equipment and sites, everything can be monitored. So quite often, we co-locate a server or a computer that runs software that monitors all of the sites and all of these uh, repeaters and power distribution units, UPSs, they all have IP connections. And from that, they send uh, what's called SNMP messages or syslog messages, which is um, standardized trouble messages to a, a server. And the server runs uh, software that takes them, parses them, puts them in different orders and can shoot them out as emails or text messages to me, to the customers, to district managers. Uh, we can customize levels of, of problems, you know, stuff that I don't want to bother my customer with. I may only get, if it's a critical failure, I may send it to everybody. You know, we, we've kind of gotten away from putting that type of stuff up on the dispatch console. Years ago, it was very commonplace because you didn't have any other way to kind of monitor this stuff. But it kind of does take away from that dispatcher's main focus, right? And that's to answer the calls, give people aid on the phone, dispatch the units, talk on the phone. You know, if they've got alarms coming in for power loss at sites or link failures during a storm, I don't necessarily know that they need to divert their attention to it. But someone needs to know about it. Gotcha. Yeah, that's pretty neat. It's it's all it's it's all. Um... It's all interconnected. That's that's kind of what I was getting at earlier when I asked you, like when you said you can do other things with IP, and I was asking like like what you know, with the sensors and all yeah. that stuff. And it's just kind of goes right back to that, and and that answers that question with like you said, you know, every everything that's going on in the remote section, the local section. I mean, even down to to UPSs and, and every little. I'm sure you have door alarms or, or tied into it as well. When somebody opens the shelter door, that that gets or the cabinet door that that gets triggered through the alarm panel as well. Yeah, so environmental for me is is a big thing. A lot of the times, you know, we we try to always co we we try to always locate equipment on fire district property or on village property or municipal property. It's you know, for us going on a commercial site or a rooftop of a building, is it is it doable? Do we do it all the time? Yes, but the safety, security, having the ability to maintenance equipment quickly is nothing like that without having it on the fire bomber property. But Wherever it's located, as stock standard, we always put DC plant, okay? We always put DC battery. And believe it or not, a lot of the customers argue and fight us on it, you know? And I could spend an hour talking about this, but yeah, everyone's got generators. And generators are great. And you maintain them at least once a month. I'm getting a call or I'm, I'm watching something go on during a windstorm or rainstorm where firehouse lost power i'm getting messages from a system power loss this that the other thing generator fails generators don't start 
and well, but you also got that you got that slight gap too between when the transfer is over from commercial power to generator power too, right? So that <laughs> sure, battery absolutely. floats you. That's that's the whole the battery floats you between when you go from point A to point B. So you know you kind of you kind of want that sitting in there. So yeah, and exactly, and and the customers it, DC plant is, is is expensive. You know, I'm not talking mm-hmm. about buying a bunch of golf cart batteries like some guys do and you know stick it in the cabinet and hope for the best. We use, uh, as you know, from cell sites, telecom-grade batteries. These are expensive, heavy, high-amperage batteries designed to run, you know, big loads for long periods of time. So we we aim for at least, at least, at a, a main site, 12 to 14 hours of, of full-blown operation. You know, hurricane comes, blows out the power. These guys can sustain for at least 12 hours of operation. Quite honestly, in standby mode, you can get many more hours. Quite embarrassing, but I had a local, you know, fire department. We did a dispatch center. And setting it up, I forgot to put in um, a client name in the email category. So I get an email one afternoon about a power loss, and from a particular customer. I said, "Oh, I don't know where this is from. I forgot to put the oh. information." <laughs> so uh, this was a Friday afternoon. So Tuesday, Tuesday morning, the customer comes in and says, "You know what? I was in my dispatch office last night, and everything was running." And this morning I came in and everything is off. So I'm like, oh, that's where that message was from. I said, I was embarrassed, <laughs> you know, but it was an oversight. You know, there's a lot, a lot of little areas you got to put things. But right, the point right. is they're, they're running DC plant there. And that stuff lasted from Friday afternoon until sometime late Monday into Tuesday morning. It finally failed. So the guy was impressed. He goes, I don't really care. You get the email. He goes, uh, he goes, it was pretty good. He goes, we, we lasted the whole weekend on battery. He goes, that's really good. So, yeah, so we, we monitor that. We monitor status of AC power, battery, temperature, door alarms, loss of link, different things. It's all about you know the telematics that really kind of add the uh, robustness to a system. Excellent. So it sounds like, long story short here, <laughs> it's more than just a guy at a desk with a microphone and an antenna and a radio. Yeah, a lot, a lot goes into it. <laughs> pretty, pretty cool. Okay, we'll be right back after these messages. This session of Scanner School is sponsored by East Coast Pagers. Now, East Coast Pagers is one of my online companies, and we are a Unication, Apollo, and Swiss phone dealer serving the North American market. Now, if you're looking for a personal use pager or one for your department, we can get you a quote at the very best prices. So why does a company like East Coast Pagers support Scanner School? I think that every Scanner Reader user should at least put one pager in their collection of radios. The reason why is very simple. It frees up your scanner to just do scanning, and then you have one radio that's dedicated to your local fire activity. Now, with a pager, you can have voice storage. You can do tone outs. You can keep it silent. You can go back the next day and listen to what you've missed overnight. It's more than you can do with an out-of-the-box scanner. And with today's pagers having multiple frequencies and even having multiple channels in a scan list, like the Unication G1 can do eight channels in a scan list. It has 64 memory channels, and out of the box, it comes with 11 minutes of stored voice and a desktop charger. The G2s to G5s, they do P25 phase one and phase two in simulcast environments with stored voice, paging on conventional NP25. Oh, and they're upgradable too to DMR type one and type two. They are more rugged than today's consumer-based scanners. And with a pager like a Swiss phone S-Quad, you won't even realize you're wearing one. It'll help keep you informed as to what's going on in your neighborhood. So again, eastcoastpagers.com or contact me directly, phil at eastcoastpagers.com. Do you have a new scanner? You're having problems understanding how it works? Maybe you're new to the entire 
Home Patrol database of programming and you can't figure out Sentinel, did you get a new SDR and you're trying to figure out how to install it or you want to learn how to use Unitrunker, DSD+, maybe set up a Pioware, or even just make some changes and you don't understand how this system and the equipment works, the podcast might be great for you, but maybe you need a little bit more of one-on-one help with setting something up. I'm available to do just that with you with our private tutoring sessions. You can book me online by going to scannerschool.com slash consulting for a one-hour session. And it's great because we can actually share computer screens remotely, and I can guide you through step-by-step as if I was sitting right next to you. So again, book me for an hour at scannerschool.com slash consulting for your scanner radio one-on-one tutoring session. National Communications Magazine is your personal library of scanner, CB, GMRS, FRS, MURS, and two-way radio articles written by the best minds in the business over the past three decades. Your Natcom personal online access account allows you to download the newest issues of America's Hobby Radio magazine, as well as back issues too. So visit natcommag.com to download your free sample issues and sign up today. That's natcommag.com for National Communications Magazine. Did you know you can help support Scanner School without it costing you any additional money? There's several ways you could do so. One of them is just by sharing the show. If you post a, a podcast session you've enjoyed on your Facebook page, share it on Twitter or retweet our stuff, that's a great way to help promote the podcast. Another way to do so is by going to scannerschool.com support and clicking on one of the banners in there that helps support the podcast. One of them is Amazon. If you click on our Amazon link and you make a purchase from our link, it doesn't cost you anything, but we earn a commission on that sale. If you're looking for software, we've got a great resource for you, Butel Software. I've been using Butel for years. Love their software. I continue to buy their software today. And you can go directly to the website by going to scannerschool.com slash Butel or by scannerschool.com slash support. Now, again, it doesn't cost you anything extra if you're going to go ahead and buy that software and by using our link. Another method we have is by going to ScannerMaster. I love ScannerMaster. Been going to, uh, they've been getting my business for years when it comes to scanner radios and accessories. Now, again, if you use our link on our website and you go make a purchase at ScannerMaster, we make a commission off that sale. But again, it doesn't cost you anything to help support us using that method. Now, for those of you that want to contribute a little bit more directly, we have a couple ways you could do so. You can donate one time by using our PayPal link. But you can also become a Patreon supporter. By becoming a Patreon supporter, it gives you benefits for supporting our our podcasts and channels and everything else. At the $1 a month level, it's a great way of saying thank you. At the $3 a month level, you will get the podcast early. As soon as the podcast is ready to be published, you'll get it in your own private podcast feed. Now, at the $5 a month level, not only do you get the $3 a month benefits, but you also get a Squelchy sticker pack. Now, Squelchy is our little radio cartoon character that represents Scanner School. Not only do you get the, the, the stickers, but you also get a special monthly Q&A session that follows the general Q&A session I do on YouTube and Facebook just for you guys, just to help you out. So again, you can help support us on Patreon by going to scannerschool.com support. And I want to thank the following 
continuing Patreon supporters. Craig Harper, Dan, Glenn Blum, Glenn Bryden, Guy Lee, Irvin Thibodeau, James Felling, Jeff Block, John Goldenberg, Ken Newberry, Kenneth Fowler, Mark Thompson, Mark Beebe, Raymond Hill, Ronnie Bach, Sal Marandola, Scott Vorder, Signals Everywhere, Stephen Sheffield, Todd Glendie, and William Arcand. Now, again, the $5 a month is our best uh, valued tier. And if the Patreon takes their cut, that's like giving us a dollar a week for the benefit of not only getting the podcast early and also getting your own private Patreon supporter live Q&A video session. So again, scannerschool.com slash support. So is there anything else that uh, that you, you want to share about what it is that you do? Or, uh, I mean, did, I'm sure there's a little bit more you could talk about, but I mean, as far as at least what it takes to get a system set up for a dispatcher. And we're talking simple dispatcher, right? One 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 department, one type of thing, that whole countywide. I mean, what else is there? If anything. Well, you know, there's other there are other assets that, you know, aspects that go into it. Constantly evolving is the commodity of what we do. Cell phone industry, it's huge. Uh, public safety, it shouldn't be huge. Lately, it has become, and the commodity that's really precious is spectrum. Spectrum meaning frequencies. And the cell phone companies make a lot of money, and they are very aggressive in how they go about selecting certain bands and certain frequencies, and it's auctioned and very expensive. That shouldn't be that way in public safety. And unfortunately, due to a lot recently, a lot of uneducated people making decisions and, and legislation, it has become that way for public safety. And I don't know if you, a lot of your scan listeners probably hear about this TBN give back really, really affecting Long Island. It's going to affect Long Island in a very bad way. The fire departments here. Nassau, Suffolk counties, New York City, Jersey, heavily, heavily rely on the T-band, and that um, that that spectrum is is in jeopardy of being pulled out from these fire departments. So we spend a lot of time balancing, trying to figure out what the next thing is, and we really shouldn't have to do that. That's driven us to kind of get in back into the regular UHF, the 450, the 460 side of things the the problem that is between those two bands and, and, the, and the t band was always purpose built when it was released from the tv where it gets its name t band it had a lot of rules it had a lot of protection built in for the public safety only agencies that were given the swaths of spectrum in there it was great you couldn't reuse channels within 40 miles of each other there was protections for adjacent channels, so on frequency, and then adjacent people above and below. You had to be, you had to study it. Okay, so if a fire department wanted frequency and New York City was on it, if you were forty miles away, and then the adjacent channels didn't cause five percent interference on a TSB study, you could relicense that channel. In the four fifties and four sixties, we don't have that protection. There's contours, there's RF contours that we go by. But the protection criteria is much less. So my point is, is that that spectrum is very crowded. Um, not only do you have people dying to get their hands on this stuff here, New York in, in Long Island, but you have all of Connecticut along the south shore of Connecticut, which abuts the north shore of Long Island, Jersey, New York City. The people that are going to get punished heavily is the north shore of Long Island. Anyone north of the expressway, because if you're operating there, you have a clear shot across the pond to all of the small 
police departments that are running P25 and DMR on the 450s and 460s. You're interfering with them. They're interfering with you. And there's not a lot you can do about it. There's nowhere else to go. The natural buffer that is the Ronkonka Marine that goes down the expressway kind of gives a buffer to anyone south of that. So, you know, you, you kind of get a pass. It doesn't really interfere as much as the guys on the North Shore. But be that as it may, that has now driven us to populate multiple site systems. So long gone are the, I'm putting up the 100, 100 foot tower on top of the 200 foot mound of dirt in my district. Now I'm just going to pump out power and almighty and I'm going to get great reception. You can't do that anymore. Now I need to put five 50 foot or 70 foot sites throughout my district so I can run lower power, be lower to the ground and not have a big footprint outside of my district, maybe my neighboring districts. It's increased costs. It's increased engineering. It's you know, it, it, it's not always the best thing, but it's it's there. So, you know, that's one of the things that we're we're faced with that that we have to deal with a lot of it. And when people hear something going on on the radio, and there's usually reasons for it. You know, districts may be in flux. They may be migrating from one system to a new system. They may be putting something and beta testing it. And so you can't always jump to conclusions about what you hear. You know, hopefully whatever district it is kind of gets their stuff worked out. But the T-band thing is going to be very interesting to watch. Yeah, I'm I'm really hoping for everybody's sake that the T-band is uh, dismissed type of thing where they, they don't decide to go through with the, the give back. Because like you're saying it's you have, I mean, NYPD and FDNY, they're, they're both licensed up in the 480 range. You know, local here and where, where you and I live, the, no, the local county system is at 505, 504 megahertz. There's just not enough resources. There's not enough real estate between 450 and 470 to put everybody who wants to play. And the only way to do this would be to put trunking or to get all the departments on DMR where they can do time slots and everything else. I mean, that's the most efficient way. But And to and go what you're saying too is not only do you have a hard time licensing and finding licenses, but you have departments with deep, deep pockets that are hoarding frequencies and that own a pile of them. And when you own them and you don't use them, that means the next guy can't use them either. So there's that whole, um, the, you get departments that are just starving for frequencies. And I know departments out in the East End and they're like, well, we have 482. And they're like, why'd you get 482 with well, T-band give back? And you're not going to be able to use that in a couple of years. We need to go on 460 where the rest of the departments out here are. We're all by ourselves now in the whole, you know, the whole North End of everything. So yeah, it's it, it's very frustrating. And again, I see from from the you know this side is it does. It would be nice if a lot of these small departments gave up a little bit of power and struggle and said, okay, we're going to pull resources and you know figure out a battalion wide trunk system or just get on the county system. For you, that's not really what you want to hear because that takes out from your pocket. But from what you're saying, that's a smart idea though with making the smaller sites because again. Again, with my nine to five job, right? That's that's what we do. We do a lot of sites that are that are low and small for capacity, or just even with the way that the technologies like LTE and UMTS work. Where my my life is, you're on one frequency and you're sharing it, and you're trying to make things so that you're you're down tilting and you're putting the RF only where it needs to be, so you're not overlapping. And that's exactly what it is you're doing when it comes to two-way public safety communications at this point is you want low and small and just dedicated to the X number of square miles you're dealing with. But your problem also is so-and-so was licensed that frequency 30 years ago. 
And they're on top of that 20 story uh, hospital with the, you know, 10 dB gain antenna putting out 50 watts because that's what they're licensed for. And they're going to just blanket your little, your little township. And, you know, even running PL and DPL and isn't it going to save you because when they key up and you key up, no matter what the PL code is, you're still jamming over the same resource. So uh, it's tough. Yeah. It is, and and you bring up a very good point that a lot of people really overlook. And and in my heart of hearts, we've been, you know, people have said, "Oh, it's a business thing for you, and you're going to lose business if you go to a county system." Well, I've heard that, and honestly, our business has grown twofold since this whole T-band thing has has come out, where people are now slowly migrating on in bits and pieces to a county system. We've been we've never been busier. So, my my point is is that. On the county systems, these guys are now going to P25 trunk systems, and that's going phase two, which is all digital all the time. I'm a firm believer. I I watched the FDNY roll out the uh, XTS 3500s in P25 and and, and do testing and beat this this horse. And all over the country, P25 digital radio is no place for the fire service to be, no place for public safety to be. I'm, I'm a firm believer in that. Can you get away with it with the police? Maybe. For the fire service, it's a different animal. The technology is great. The thought of it is great. But the vocoder, the the digital radio is just not there yet. And I don't know if it'll ever really be there, but for right now, it's not there. And when you have a person using a radio next to a fire truck, you know, screaming at 3000 RPM and pump or a partner saw or other loud noises, you know, water shooting off a ceiling in a, in a fire room, the radio, the, the vocoder in the radio, the processor doesn't know how to handle that. It creates noise and artifact and winds up dropping out entire syllables or entire words, just making noise. So the counties are faced with a, a, a problem. What do we do with these public safety people? Well, we have this great Trump radio system. Let's just put the fire service on there. Well, Maybe if it's analog, I don't know that I'd want to, you know, operate on a trunk system because there, there are there are fallbacks to that. But now pepper in digital all the time, and it's really a bad place for the fire service to go. I've thought of that before any of this, and 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 a lot of places have have embraced that. It kind of goes against NFPA guidelines. It kind of goes against common sense. So with that with that in mind. I just I I try to tell people that it's great to have those radios. It's great to be able to talk to the county, to interoperate to other departments. But for your primary operations, your day to day firefighting or public safety use, nothing is like staying on your own thing and really staying in analog. It's your simplest form of communication. It's hard to screw up. It's hard not to understand what other people are saying. It's reliable, and you maintain your equipment. Okay, as a fire district, you're responsible to maintain your equipment, not the county, not somebody else. It works. The buck stops with you. So you're right. There are departments hoarding frequencies out there. There are departments still operating on low band that have nothing that are looking to go to UHF that can't get UHF channels because departments that are in the T-band said, oh, my God, we may need these channels. Let's go out and get a 460 channel and just hang on to it. I don't fault them for doing that. I can't fault them for doing that because they're trying to protect their their citizens, their taxpayers, their members to have something. But what do you do for the small little department that 
is still a low band that has nowhere to go and can't get a channel. So it, it, it's the legislation has created a nightmare. It's it, it was half baked at best. It's technically infeasible. There's nowhere to put these people, and the technology is never going to fix that. I definitely understand what you're saying with that one, and uh, I I know firsthand because as as you know, as I sell the pagers, I sold one to a very small department out here in Nassau County, and and they were low band, and and they had to basically beg and plead to the county to say, hey, look, can you put us on your UHF dispatch channel? And even getting that done for them was a real heartache. And then you know, at least now they're on UHF dispatch, and they're able to use the county UHF tactical channel so they're able now at least to get rolled over onto uhf so but again it's it's um my prediction i and i said it in an earlier podcast at the beginning of the year was that i i have a feeling that there's gonna be enough pushback especially here there's, there's gonna be no place to put anybody they, it's just easy enough to do just look at the fcc data, database and see how many licenses there are in the t-band spectrum and what the population is in that area and just see how many other licenses are in that that neck of the wood you know neck of the woods and see like you know, there's no way, there's no way to even do this. So that's what I was just saying. Unless they threw somebody on some sort of digital mode where you can be more efficient with your spectrum or, you know, just tell everybody to play nice and, and say, hey, you know, you need to reevaluate your, your uh, thought process here and say, okay, you've got your own dispatch channel, but you guys have to start thinking about consolidating fireground frequencies instead of everybody getting their own fireground channel and everything else too. But that's, uh, I think we're getting to a topic that's more specific to our neck of the woods. <laughs> so yeah. as opposed yeah. to yeah. being where everybody else is. So, but, uh, but Rob, it was, it was really good having you on as, as a guest today. I know we got uh, a little bit off topic here at the end as far as how a setup works, but I mean, it's, it's definitely passionate to you and, and, you know, as, as somebody who does the installs and has to deal with as, as a customer and a client having, having, uh, public safety out there. I mean, it's, it's definitely something that is, uh, is on your mind all the time and it's on your customer's mind. So I, I definitely appreciate you bringing that up. And for those who don't really have to worry about the T-band, this is the struggle that, you know, departments out here are kind of faced with. And it's really hard where, you know, they want to get licensed and they're kind of like, well, we don't want to pay for licensing because we don't know if we're going to own it in a, in a year or two or even a couple months, depending when, you know, you listen to this podcast. But definitely some interesting times. I mean, and this is what makes radio cool, right? This is what makes two-way communication and, and, and listening and building the systems. It's always, like you said, Rob, it's, it's always evolving. It's always changing. And there's always enhancements, which is, which is good because it's job security. <laughs> yeah, it, it's cool. uh, it's job security, and it, it's just really an exciting, exciting time to be to be doing this stuff, you know. Yep. So very cool. So if somebody wants to reach out and, and pick your brain for expertise or hire you because uh, you know locally, or maybe you have them hire you to do propagation plots for where they are, uh, what's a good way for somebody to get in touch with you? Or, or uh, if you want to drop the name of the business or anything, it's you know this is be my guest. Go ahead. I, I appreciate it, Phil. And thank you for having me on. I always uh, enjoy talking to you and um, always checking out W2LE and uh, popping on the message boards. But um, yeah, the uh, name of the company is RF Design. And um, you can reach out through Phil or office number is uh, 516-345-9747. And we'd be glad uh, if you have any questions or need some guidance or looking to maybe get a new vendor, we'd be happy to talk to you. Excellent. And we'll put all that information, too, in the session notes of the podcast as well. So the uh, session link will be at the beginning of this podcast and the end of the podcast. So as we're recording it, it doesn't yet have a number. So <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll put that in post-edit. So, But, Rob, thank you so much again for uh, for spending the evening tonight uh, recording this. And uh, I want to say thanks again. Thanks, Phil. I greatly appreciate it.
All right, Rob, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It's always great to catch up with you. And uh, even as we had in the podcast here, just to kind of uh, chew the fat for a bit and, uh, and and do some catching up. So again, if anybody has any any need for Rob's services, you can reach out to him. We'll put links again in the podcast show notes, scannerschool.com slash session 118. And if you want to be a guest on the podcast, I'm always looking for other people to talk to and share what it is you do that's related to the scanner radio hobby. So again, you can reach out to me at scannerschool.com slash guest. Again, the link will be in the session notes as well. All right, guys, with that, we will catch you all again next week. 73, everyone.